All right, so grab your Bible and uh, jump over to um, Numbers, the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 13. We're going to be in chapter 13 and 14. You're going to need a Bible. Uh, we have Bibles in the back. And um, if you need to borrow that or if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to gift that to you. And uh, just grab that, flip over to Numbers, fourth book of the Bible. And um, we are a Bible church. We like to study the Bible verse by verse. And why do we do this? Why do we do this? Why do we put so much emphasis on the Bible and have uh, Bible-centric sermons? It's because, you know, Isaiah 40 uh, says that um, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so as times change and opinions change and, and everything changes all around us, what's socially acceptable changes, what's moral in our society changes. The Word of God never changes. And so we like to go to it to say, hey, how should we know God and live for Him? Uh, we're going to just read a few verses out of Numbers 13, but then we're going to really unpack a lot of 13 and 14. But just to bring you up to where we are. We have been journeying through the Bible together as a church, and um, I hope you're continuing to do that. And if you want to jump in, you can just jump in any week. I think we're starting week, uh, what week are we starting, Nathan? 10? 11? Those are all the people who are reading. They, they know what week we're going into. All right, so, um, but you can just jump into week 11. There's stuff on the website to help you do that. But, um, but we're journeying through the Bible together, and so as we've read so far, uh, God freed his people from slavery in Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, brought them into the promised land. He's performing miracles. He makes a covenant with them, gives them the Ten Commandments. We've already seen that. They, they end up breaking the covenant, and so then God, in his grace and mercy, renews the covenant with them. That's what we saw last week, the renewal of the covenant, the glory of God. And then they are now on the edge of the promised land. God leads them up to the edge of the promised land and he's ready to send them into it. And they send spies to kind of scout out the place, to check out the land. And that's where we are today. These 12 spies, they send into the promised land and, uh, and what happened there. So here we are, um, Numbers 13. Let's start in verse 17 to verse 20. And, uh, and then we will pray. Are you there? You ready? Here we go. Well, Moses sent them to spy out the land in Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Nagab and go into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether their cities they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor whether there are trees in it or not. But be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together, church. Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord, for your presence among us, for your spirit in this place. God, I thank you for your spirit indwelling us, and I pray that you would, you would just teach us by your spirit through your word today, God. I pray, Lord, that Today, it would be more than transfer of information, God, but, but really we would just hear from you and that you would transform our lives as a result of this. God, I pray that 
you would battle a spirit of fear that rises up in us and that you would increase our faith to believe you for better things ahead. So Lord, um, I need you. I need you, God. This is nothing without you and your spirit and your work. We love you, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, um, there are three uh, main scenes here in the text. Uh, we're going to be in uh, 13 and then 14 and then the end of 14. And there's three main scenes. And the first one is this, the report. The report. So as we just began to read, let's just go back through it verse by verse. Uh, chapter 17, I'm sorry, 13, verse 17. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. And said to them, go up into the hill country to Negev and go into the, to the hill country. So he says, hey, go spy out the land. And, and, um, and so this is, would be a common thing that they would, should do. I mean, we do this. Anytime you go on a trip, you go on a trip, you're taking a vacation, you're going somewhere you've never been before, what do you do? You get on that little Google and you're, you, know, you start to see where is this at, how do I get there? You get directions, you make reservations, you see what there is to do in the city, uh, what kind of people are in the city, and, and you begin to spy out the land. You just do it all on your computer. But here, you know, they didn't have Google, so they send these spies in to spy out the land. This would have been a prudent thing to do. Jesus um, actually tells us in the New Testament that, that you should uh, consider things. You should um, make plans and be diligent and don't go to war without making a plan whether or not you can overtake the army in front of you. So they're being diligent here, getting a plan together because they're leading millions of people into this promised land. So they want to know what they're getting themselves into and to prepare accordingly. And so he goes, so go spy out the land. He continues and says, um, see whether the land, whether the people dwell in there are strong or weak, whether they're few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they dwell in are camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, whether there are trees are in it or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. Notice he says, be of good courage. Uh, the whole idea here is that it's going to take faith to go into what God has called them to go into. They're going to encounter difficulties. They're going to encounter things that feel bigger than themselves. And he says, be of good courage. Walking by faith takes courage. You've got to realize they've never done this before. They've been enslaved for 400 years. They've never been landowners. They don't know what this is going to be like. There's a lot of unknown happening here. And so he, he says, be of good courage. God's bringing you into something new, something different, something scary. It's going to take courage. Verse 21, he says, So they went up and spied out the land of the wilderness of Zin and Rehob near the uh, Labo Hamath. They went up to Negab and came to Hebron, Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Um, and they came to the valley of Eshcol and, and cut down from there the breach from a single, a branch from a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some of the pomegranates and figs, and uh, that place was called the valley of Eshcol because the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. 
So they go in, they're going all around, they're going to all the different places, they're pretty much doing a survey of the land, and, and Moses tells them to bring back some fruit. So they grab this cluster of grapes that is so large that it takes two of them to hold a pole between them to carry these grapes back to the camp. That's some big grapes. Man, Kimmy bought some grapes recently. They're the best grapes I've had in a long time. They're like crisp and, and, and plump, and they're just great grapes. But these had to be even better. It'd be huge, these grapes. It's interesting that, uh, you know, this, this idea of, a, of a, a, a pole of grapes between two men is actually a historic symbol throughout um, Israel. They still use this symbol today for their um, ministry of tourism. Look at that. Isn't that cool? They, they, they use this icon, um, this logo, and I was telling Cinda this as I was showing her this picture this morning, and she said, oh, so these, five, these spies were like the first tourists in Israel. It makes sense, right? It makes sense. Verse 25 says, At the end of 40 days they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh, and they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, um, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. So this is the first part of the report. They're given a report. They're go they were given a mission. Go spy out the land. Bring us back a report. The first part of their report is that the land is abundant. They bring these huge grapes. It says they, they, they testify that the land is indeed flowing with milk and honey. And I've told you before, you know, that this is the basic ingredients for ice cream. And last time I said that, someone challenged me and said, you don't know how to make ice cream, do you? And, and so then I, I wanted to confirm, because I have made ice cream, and, and I, ha I wanted to confirm, so I went and looked up, and there's three basic ingredients you need for ice cream. And you know what it is? Milk or creamer, milk or cream, uh, sweetener, like honey, and some form of flavor. So this is honey-flavored ice cream uh, in the winter. And um, you know I'm joking, of course, but um, the idea of flowing with milk and honey is an idiom for it is um, abundantly good land. Um, the milk, flowing with milk, does not mean like there are streams of milk, right? This isn't like Wally, what, what is it? Willy Wonka's chocolate factory with the, ch they don't have like a chocolate milk river happening. This is just the idea that the land is so good for grazing that the animals are healthy, the cattle is healthy, the, uh, and they're producing plenty of milk. And then the idea of honey, um, it could be bee, honey from bees as we know, but it could also be speaking of honey like sap from a tree, like we would think of like syrup, or, or um, uh, the, the honey from figs, like the, the, the sweetener from figs. And, uh, and so the idea here is, you know, honey was not as common as it is. They couldn't just go to the grocery store and pick it up off the shelves, you know. And so honey was a, a delicacy. It was a special treat. It was really one of the only forms of natural sweetener. Like they didn't have stevia and they didn't have Splenda and aspartame and all that kind of stuff. So this was one of the only natural sweeteners. The, the point being is that, um, man, this was a really blessed place. This was an amazing place. It's filled with flocks or milks and fruit, honey. 
It's flowing with milk and honey. So the first part of the report is, hey, it's just as it was promised. It's pretty great. But then they, they pivot and they give this second part of the report in verse 28. However, he says, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified, very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of Negab. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. So they're giving this now um, less positive part of the report. They start with, however. It's flowing with milk and honey, however. Now this word is a strong way to make a contradictory statement. However means despite all of that. So the message of most the spies was the land was just as wonderful as God promised, but we can't conquer it. Everything that the spies said from this point on is uncalled for. So however, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified, very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there, and they, talk, they describe these people as very tall. So they're like, hey, the land is filled with like Shaquille O'Neal's and Andre the Giants, if you're familiar with Andre the Giant. Like it's, it's filled with big people. Filled with big people. Be scared. Verse 32 says that they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land. They spied out, saying, The land though which we have gone to spy it out, the land devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in there are great height. So he gives a bad report. Maybe your translation might say an evil report. What this, the idea of an evil report is not that it's evil in the sense, it's that it's false. They're giving a false report, hence the title of the sermon, Fake News. Fake News, they're giving a false report. Now, sometimes uh, I have difficulty titling the sermons. And uh, so last night we had my sister-in-law and her boyfriend over and we were playing games and I hadn't quite settled on a title yet. So I said, hey, what do you guys think? Maybe you can, let's play, help the pastor title his sermon. And so that's what we did. And I gave them a, an overview of what the sermon was going to be about. And we began to throw back and forth uh, little ideas. Nothing felt right. And then uh, Reagan said, fake news. And the whole room was, yeah, that's it. That's it. It just accompanies, like, 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 that, that wraps up everything, summarizes everything. They're believing a false report. They're given a false report. And it really damages their life. Um, they're moving here in this section from reporting on what Moses asked them um, to then now including their opinion about it. So they went from being a reporter of the news, this is the facts about what has happened, to then being an opinion piece. Here's what we believe about it. That's, they weren't asked to do that. And what they do here is that they're exaggerating. They're using hyperbole. In verse 32, it says, uh, we saw, um, it, it says, the land devours its inhabitants. That's not, that's not true. He says, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. All, all the people? All the people. There are no short people in this place. They're all, all big. It's like when you say, everyone's against me. Everyone, everyone's against you. Every, everyone, 
Yeah, they're, using, they're exaggerating. They're, they're really lying here. He says, we saw the Nephilim, verse 33. We saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. We seem, we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, so we seem to them. He said, we saw the Nephilim. Now, everybody wants to know about the Nephilim, right? These are these interesting people, creatures in, in Genesis chapter 6, believed to be half angel, half people type things. We're not going to talk about the Nephilim today. Aw. We're not going to talk much about the Nephilim. How, if, if the Nephilim were killed off, the question is, if the Nephilim were killed off at, uh, at the flood, how, how do they end up here? And uh, you can go and study this for yourself. Let me give you what I believe. And what I believe is that, they're, um, that these aren't really Nephilim. I, I believe that this, they're, they're using language to incite fear similarly to like the boogeyman. The hobgoblins are there. Like, they're these big bad creatures that are gonna, they're gonna eat us up. Like, fee, fi, fo, fum. Like, they're just coming after us. There's trolls under the bridge. Like, there's, they're, they're trying to incite fear. There's big giant Nephilim. They're believing lies. They said, we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. Now, grasshoppers was the smallest edible insect. They're going to eat us for lunch. We would probably think of it like, uh, like shrimp, right? Like a little, we're like a little shrimp cocktail to these people. They're going to eat us as an, uh, an appetizer. But he says here, that we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. That's, a, that's just a personal feeling. I felt like we were grasshoppers. But then he says this interesting thing where he says, and so we seem to them. Now, how does he know that? I have a feeling if these people are big, bad, scary people, they weren't like having conversations about how they viewed them. Because So he's, he's now then attributing thoughts to others and then uh, producing fear based on something he fabricated in the mind of someone else. He's attributing to them thoughts about themselves. They, they, we thought we, they looked at us and they thought we were grass. How do you know that? See, whenever we live in fear, you begin to believe things that are not real. Your mind begins to tell you stories. And you begin to believe them and get anxious and worked up about things that aren't even real. What is the truth about what they believed? Well, it actually tells us in, in Joshua chapter 2. I'll flip there for you briefly. In Joshua 2 verse 9, it tells us how these people in the land actually viewed these Israelites. Joshua 2 9 says... And so, the, so, so then uh, uh, these spies go out to spy out this land uh, later on when they get into the promised land, these two spies, and they meet Rahab, and she gives them a little rundown about the attitude of the people. Verse 9, she says, And she said to these men, uh, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and 
when you did uh, to two kings of the Amorites and beyond the Jordan and Sihon and Og, whom you have devoted uh, to destruction. And soon, as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God in heavens above and on the earth beneath. So they are sitting there giving a false report saying, look, we look like grass. They're going to eat us for lunch. And the truth is in their hearts, they're shaking in their boots saying, if those people who came across the Red Sea come into our land, we're toast. They were believing lies. They were spreading lies. But not everyone has a bad report. So Caleb speaks up. In uh, verse 30 of Numbers 13. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. Let us go up. So you have one person, we see later that Joshua's kind of silent until later. So you have these two spies, Joshua and Caleb. Caleb speaks up and says, no, we can do it. God's given it to us. He's going to help us acquire the land. In, in God, we will be victorious. Let's go, let's go. See, Caleb's response is based on the same information that the other ten spies had. He wasn't working with different facts. The facts were the same. They all saw the same thing. And one set of spies, the majority of the spies, saw it and said, we, we can't do it. And then these two spies, in faith, said, yes, we can. The facts didn't change. It's how they viewed the facts. It's how they believed in God in the face of the facts. F.B. Myers compared the perspective of the ten unbelieving spies to that of the two faithful spies, Caleb and Joshua. And he says this, he says they saw the same spectacle in their survey of the land, but the result in one case was panic, in the other, confidence and peace. What made the difference? It lay in this, that the ten spies compared themselves with the giants, whilst the two compared the giants with God. Isn't that great? We're like grasshoppers. It's like, yeah, they're like grasshoppers compared to our God. You get the same type of idea whenever you see the story of David and Goliath. And all the Israelites are shaking their boots at the sight of Goliath, this giant. Many believe that, that the giant, Goliath, was a descendant of the Amalekites here. These giant people, these large people. So now David's facing this and all the people are, are like, he's too big to beat Goliath, this giant, and David sees him and says, he's too big to miss. What are you talking about? He's too big to miss. Like, I have a big God, it'll be okay. We have to understand that in Christ, we are more than conquerors. He says, in all things, Romans 8, 37, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And, and, and whatever God brings us to, he will bring us through it, and we need to have faith to believe in him. There will be challenges in this life. Jesus said that. He said, hey, take heart. There, you, there, will, be, there will be difficulties in life. He says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. 
in Christ, we can overcome our fears, okay? When we step out in faith, though, um, well, let's see what happens. Verse 31. So, so Caleb speaks out, we can do it. And then verse 31. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought the people of Israel a bad report of the land. It spied out the land, though, which they had gone to spy it out is the land that devours its inhabitants. Again, their opinion. And all the people, all the people we saw were of great height. Um, you know, whenever you step out in faith, other people will step on you in fear. Right? You step out in faith, you have some naysayers who try to squanch your faith. I heard one person say that, um, that it's easier to stop a parked car than it is one that's barreling down the highway. And so whenever you begin to start something in faith, that's whenever you're going to get the most resistance. Because it's easier to keep you down than once you get going to stop you. And so whenever you step out in faith, expect people to step on you in fear. So that's the report. They gave a, hey, it's just like God promised, but however, in spite of all that, we can't do it. Lies, lies, they're believing lies, stirring up fear. And then people believe it. So the next scene is the revolt. So the report and then the revolt. Let's go into chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. You've got to understand, listen, they were enslaved for 400 years. The entire time they were enslaved, they were holding on to this hope that God had promised their ancestor Abraham that he would bring them out of slavery and bring them into the promised land. So for generations, they're living, holding on to this hope that one day God will deliver us. God delivers them. They're like, yes, it's happening. He's bringing us into the promised land. They get to the edge of the promised land, and they're expecting the spies to come back and say, let's go. Let's get it. It's here. And the spies bring back this terrible report. So then all their hopes and, and are crushed. Their dreams, their hopes... So it says, well, the congregation, a loud cry. All the people wept that night. All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is it that the Lord is bringing us out of this land to fall by the sword? See, they're believing lies. Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They believed the bad report of the ten spies, of the majority. See, fear is contagious. Fear is contagious. And uh, people begin to sow fear and everybody gets afraid. And be careful because the majority isn't always right. Actually, seldomly is the majority right. I was listening to a debate between two views on some morality uh, between pastors. And um, one of them was arguing that our basis, our standard uh, for morality is the ob objective word of God. And the other didn't really have a, an objective standard for morality. And when he was pressed on how, how, what he believes is like, what is your standard for right and wrong? Well, he's like, well, you know, history and uh, science and, and the majority, you know, he's like, throughout, throughout cultures, the majority generally 
identify what is right and wrong in their culture. And it's like, that's your standard for morality is what the majority believes? That's not going too great for them right now. When you're fearful and hopeless and faithless, you begin to talk nonsense. Look at some of the things they said. They said, what it, it would be better for us to go back to Egypt. Be better, for, be better for us to go back into slavery? Really? Than to step into the, the promise of God? They are, in this act, they're totally rejecting God's plan for redemption. And whenever you choose to do something that is contrary to God's will, we are saying, in effect, I'm going back to Egypt. They say, let's go back to Egypt. And then they say, let us choose for us a leader to lead us back to Egypt. (laughs) How would you like that role? Yeah, I'm going to be the one who leads us back into slavery. Here they are rejecting God's leader and God's divinely appointed mediator of salvation. This is a rejection of God. So they're talking nonsense. We have to be willing to confront those who are talking nonsense sometimes. You encounter a believer, a friend, a loved one. They're professing faith in Jesus, but they're talking nonsense out of fear. We've got to be willing to say, hey, cut it out. That's not true. Stop thinking like that. See, they're using selective memory here. They're forgetting all that God had done in their life. See, fear is rooted in uncertainty and unbelief. Fear is rooted in uncertainty and unbelief. That we forget the promises of God and the faithfulness of God. Remember, they're forgetting the promises of God. One of the first cities that they encounter uh, is Hebron. Verse 22 of chapter 13. They encounter the city Hebron. It's one of the first cities that they see as one of these blessed, beautiful, lush places. Hebron, that should have immediately brought back their mind to uh, the patriarch, the beginning of the faith of Israel, Abraham. Because Abraham and Lot, they got to the place where they were growing so large they needed to separate and go their separate ways. And Lot chose a place to go. And Abraham went a different way. And it says that Abraham settled, this is in Genesis 13, that Abraham settled in the land of Hebron. This is is where Abraham was. This is where the patriarchs were buried. This is where he buried his wife, Sarah, So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob are buried here in Hebron. So to bring them back to the promise that God made to them. Genesis 15, um, 13. Abraham is in Hebron when the Lord makes this promise to him. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is theirs, that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. So, no, so they remember back, okay, so God told us 
we were going to be enslaved for 400 years. Check. Then God told us that he'd free us from that. Check. He told us that we would leave with great possessions. Remember? Remember right before they left, they asked all their Egyptian neighbors, hey, can I borrow some gold? Some silver? And they, 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 so they like, the whole place, they took all of it. They left with great possessions. Check. They're forgetting this promise that God made to Abram. And then in Exodus chapter 3, when God calls Moses, he tells him, I'm going to bring you guys into a land flowing with milk and honey. And that's just what they saw. God did what he said. God had promised them victory. Uh, chapter 13, let's look back at verse 2. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel, from which every tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. Notice he says, Send spies into the land which I am giving to the people of Israel. The land is a gift. And what do you have to do with a gift? <clears throat> this is what we teach our, our daughter when we talk about the gifts of God. To reach out and take it. Reach out and take it. So we do. We do our little Bible study time. Daddy and daughter. What do you do with a gift? You reach out and take it. Everybody, you know you want to do this. Come on, guys. Come on, all together now. What do you do with a gift? Reach out and take it. And it's so easy to control masses, right? <laughs> Got to be careful. Got to be careful. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. So it's a gift. It's a gift there to take. Who are they afraid of? They're afraid of the Amalekites. The Amalekites, these giant people, the ones that the Nephilim come from, they claim. Um, had they forgotten, though, that earlier, if, you, if you've been reading, maybe you remember the story earlier in uh, Exodus chapter 17, where they, they do this battle, they have this battle against the Amalekites. And the Israelites and the Amalekites are going to battle, and Abraham, he goes and raises his staff, and as his staff is up, uh, they, the Israelites are winning, and as his arms get tired and he drops, they begin to lose, and so some buddies come up and help him raise his hands. And they win, and they defeat the Amalekites. But the Lord makes a promise after they've defeated the Amalekites. It's in Exodus chapter 17, and uh, verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. The Amalekites are the descendants of Amalek. Remember the promise. I told you I was going to blot them out. I've guaranteed victory over the very people that you are afraid of, the Amalekites. Do you remember in your reading Leviticus, chapter 26, whenever God is giving them promises, hey, if you're obedient, these things will happen to you. If you're disobedient, these other things are going to happen to you. Whenever he said, if you're obedient, these are some of the promises made in, in Leviticus 26, uh, 9. Or maybe seven. Yeah, go back to seven. 
Let me see, what do I want to, let's go back to six, okay? He says, I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land. That's where the dinosaurs went. I don't know if you knew that. And uh, I'm just kidding, guys. Just kidding. The, and the sword, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I will remove harmful beasts from the land. <laughs> I will remove harmful beasts from the land. And the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies. Look at it. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand of your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make your fruitful and multiply and confirm my covenant with you. Don't you love that? So he's like, yeah, okay, the people may be bigger than you are. They may be more than you are, but I have promised you victory. Five of you are going to take out a hundred. A hundred are going to take out ten thousand. Like I have promised you victory, guaranteed. God is on your side. So they've forgotten God's promises. Those are his promises. But they've also forgotten God's faithfulness. So if you're going to believe promises, you have to believe that the person who makes the promises is trustworthy to fulfill those promises. And if you remember his faithfulness, you remember that he is trustworthy to do what he said. They showed him, God showed them his power by sending the plagues in the 10 plagues in Egypt by crossing the Red Sea on dry land. Whenever they got to the other side and they encountered bitter water, he cleared up the water, purified the water so they'd have something to drink. Later, when they ran out of water again, he gave them water from a rock. When they were hungry, he sent bread from heaven. Whenever they were hungry for meat, he sent quail from heaven. He led them by a, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He's led them previously in recent past of victory in battle. God has done uh, things over and over to prove his faithfulness to the people of Israel, and they should have trusted him, but they had forgotten as one pastor said, they magnified the obstacles and minimized God's promises. And that's what happens whenever we, we live in fear. We magnify the obstacles. The obstacles become so big in our mind. The problems are the thing that we only think about. And we minimize the promises of God. And we should, it should be the very opposite. It should be the very opposite. Warren Wearsby said this, the will of God will never lead us where the grace of God cannot provide for us and the power of God cannot protect us. If our daily prayer is thy will be done and if we walk in obedience to God's will then what is there to complain about? A complaining spirit is evidence of an ungrateful heart and an unsurrendered will. By our grumbling we're daring to say that we know more than God does about what's best for his people. Be careful. Their, their fear is rooted in uncertainty and unbelief because they've forgotten the promises and the faithfulness of God. Now, now, now so this, it shifts a little bit. Now remember, think of this. Um, you have 
uh, five guys in a boat <clears throat> rowing, right? You row like this. This is how you row, right? Or do you do like this? Like this? Like a better form, all right? So you have five guys. Imagine this. You have five guys in a boat. You see this scene. Five guys in a boat. They're rowing together. You have one guy on the opposite end of the boat, and he's rowing in the opposite direction. Now, if you see that, you think, who is working against the objective? Yeah, that one guy, right? He's working against it. Now, now imagine the scene uh, zooms out a little bit, and you see these five guys rowing, but they're rowing towards a waterfall that is going to end in certain death. And now you have the one guy rowing. Now who's working against the objective? Right? The five guys. He's like, I'm trying to save you from certain death. That's what Caleb does here in verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, here it is, and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we possess, which we passed through to spy it out is exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So there is a couple, a minority who had faith and faith is rooted in assurance. They are assured that the Lord is with them. They are assured of the promises and faithfulness of God. And they are willing to walk out in that and receive the victory that comes from assurance in Christ. Rebellion is rooted in fear. He says only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land. When you fear people more than you fear God... You rebel against God. See, they rebelled against God and feared the people. When they should have feared God. And been obedient, been obedient in faith despite the people. They've got it all mixed up here. Yet... Man, the nation hated them for their faith. Look at verse 10. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. They wanted to kill them for their faith. But the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting. So so God's glory intervened to save them. Whenever you step out in faith, expect opposition. Did I already say that? Maybe you need to hear it again. Expect fearful, faithful people to try to stomp out your faith and hope. It is easier to be fearful than it is to be faithful and expect resistance. One of the things that is significant about this scene, so in, um, so the, they had two reports earlier, uh, chapter 13. The report of the 10 spies, we can't do it. The report of the two spies, Caleb and Joshua, we can do it. And they had to choose which one to believe. They believed the majority. They wanted to go back into slavery. 
Um, that itself is a worthy sin. Uh-oh, i got a, an alarm going off here. That itself is a worthy sin to be judged. But in God's grace, he gives them another opportunity to repent. So the two spies speak up again. He says, don't do this. Believe God. Let's take a step of faith. Let's occupy the land. And they, they, they grab onto this again. And the congregation said, let's stone them. That leads us to the result. We have the report. We have the revolt. Now here's the result. Look at verse 26. Let's skip down to verse 26. The Lord said, uh, spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard their grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and your children shall become shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness." until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity, 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. Verse 37 says, The men who brought up a bad report of the land died by a plague before the Lord. Um, so, God uh, now judges them. God now judges them. Um, be careful what you say, because uh, you just might get it, right? Because they said, a couple things that they said, they were afraid to die in the wilderness. Would you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? And God's like, okay, I'll give it to you. You're going to die in the wilderness now. They were afraid of, for the well-being of their children. What if they take over our children and kill our children and our, and our, and our wives? And ironically, God's like, actually, the children you're afraid of, I'm actually going to give them the promise that you reject. So the very things that they were afraid of, they're getting as a result of their own disobedience. It, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy, if you will. They believed it and they created it for themselves. Now, the, the thing that's, that's dangerous here is we've got to be careful with what we ask for. Matthew 12, 36-37, Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And this is a beautiful example of that. That by their words, their unbelief, their grumbling, their revolt and rebellion against God, they were condemned. Now, I'm not saying I, I don't believe in the word of faith movement or you can speak things into existence or some superstitious thing about what you say. I'm saying be careful what you ask for because you just might get it. 
What words are you saying? What is it saying about your heart? What are you wishing for by your words? It's interesting that the ten spies died immediately. So he tells the nation, hey, you're going to die out over the next 40 years. But these ten spies, verse 37, the ones that brought up a bad report, died from a plague of the Lord. Why did they die immediately? I think it's kind of connected to the principle that Jesus explained in Luke chapter 17, verse 2, where he says, It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and cast into the sea than to cause one of these little ones to sin. That there is an added level of accountability whenever you lead others into sin. They led the whole nation in rebellion against God, stirring up fear. And rebellion, and therefore they were judged more severely than the rest. Be careful when you cause others to stumble. Listen, even if it's just by sowing fear into the hearts of others. Hey, be careful. Be careful what you say. Even if it's just stirring fear. So you might ask, why was God so harsh? They complained, and so God said, okay, you're going to die. Why was he so harsh? Um, first, I would say, uh, this was the tenth time they tested God. It's not like the first thing. It's not like, uh, in, in verse uh, 22 of chapter 14, it says, None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt in the wilderness shall put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice. Um, we don't have time to go through all ten of these. The point being is that they tried God over and over and over and over. This was like God saying, one, two, three, three and a half, right? Four, five, like he, he's patient. He's patient. And in this wilderness scene, ten times significantly, testing God, rebelling against God, grumbling and complaining against God. So this was the last straw. God had been patient with them. Second, this was a merciful act. This was a merciful act. Just remember, he could have just killed them all in, the, in a moment and said, I'm going to start over with some new people. He could have just wiped them off the face of the planet. But instead, he says, I'm going to let you die out naturally. And um, he says, you're going to wander for 40 years. And in that time would have been a period of time where the majority of people could have died uh, naturally by old age. And then your kids will inherit the land. So I'm still going to give the promised land to your children. I'm still going to make good on my promise. But the results of your rebellion is going to be visited to you. And so you got to understand God here, um, initially, whenever they did this, uh, God wanted to kill them. He's like, okay, Moses, this is it. I'm going to get them. And then Moses interceded for them and said, Lord, don't kill them. Don't kill them, please. And so God forgave them. Um, but even though they received the forgiveness of God, they still had to live with the consequences of their sin. And, and God... Um, can forgive you of any sin. There's no sin that is too big for God to forgive. 
but we might still have to live with the consequences of the results of our sin. And what we see clearly in this passage is that if you uh, believe lies, that it will lead to fear. You will live in fear. And fear of people will then lead to rebellion against God. And rebellion against God will lead us to death, lead us to curse, cursing. But if you believe truth, you have faith, you walk in obedience, walk in faith and obedience, it leads to a life of blessing and eternal life. If you have time, I want to show you one last thing. Um, Because I think it's important. And uh, I want to close with this. This is in, in Numbers chapter 13, verse 16. We haven't read this verse yet. Numbers 13, 16 says, uh, so he, he, God tells him to choose these spies, and it names all the spies. And, and the last one it names is verse, in verse 16. says, these were the names of the men who Moses sent out to spy the land. And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. So he changes Hoshea's name uh, to, to Joshua. Now that's significant because um, Hoshea means salvation. But Joshua means Yahweh is salvation. It's believed that this is probably the first time that uh, someone's name is, includes the name Yahweh. So, so Moses looks at Hoshea and says, I'm going to change your name from salvation to Yahweh is salvation. And Joshua in Hebrew is a Yeshua. Maybe you're familiar that the Greek translation of that is Jesus. So Joshua is the Hebrew name for Jesus. Joshua. God is our salvation. And you notice, if you know the story, Joshua is the one who leads them into the promised land. So Moses, he is a picture of the law. God gave the law through Moses. He's this emblem of the law. And the law does not get you into the promised land. Jesus gets you into the promised land. The law was never designed to save us. The Bible says that the law was designed to be a schoolmaster or guardian to bring us to Christ. So as we read this, we say, okay, I'm I'm not going to live by fear. I'm going to live by faith. I'm going to do this. Don't think that you can do it in your own strength. Because it's not by obeying the rules that you enter into the promised land. It's by faith in Jesus that gets you into the promised land. Now, most of us know that we are saved by faith, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. That we are saved by grace through faith. But then we do this weird thing once we're saved. Is we begin to think that that now I have to perfect myself in my own strength. Okay, God saved me. Now I got it from here, God. I'll do better. But Colossians 2.6 says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in Him. As you received Christ Jesus, 
So how did I receive Christ Jesus? By grace through faith. So then how should I walk in Christ Jesus? By grace through faith. You might say, wait, wait, wait. Isn't there a verse that says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? That's Philippians 2. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There you go, pal. You're supposed to work it out. But notice the rest of the verse. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, comma. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Isn't that great? He's like, work out your own salvation, but you can't. Because it's God who works in you to will, to want to, to desire it, and to work for his good pleasure. So we are saved by grace through faith. And we are sanctified by grace through faith. Place your faith in Jesus today. Walk by faith and not by fear. Not in your own strength. But in the strength of the Lord. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word to us. And Father, I pray that we would receive the warning of the consequences of living in fear. As we experience difficulties and obstacles in life, I pray that we would not be crippled by fear as these ten spies were, as the nation of Israel were. But Lord, that's where we find ourselves most of the time. So God, I pray that you'd do a supernatural work in our hearts today, that you would give us the faith by your grace to trust you, to step out, to take the risk, to fight the giant in Jesus' name. That you'd help us, Lord, by your grace, by your strength, to walk by faith and not by fear. And I'm, Father, I pray if there's anyone in here who has never trusted you with their life, trusted you as Lord received eternal life from you. I pray that today would be the day where they turn from their self-ruled life and embrace you, Jesus, for the forgiveness of their sin, that they place their faith in you, that you're the only one that can save. They'd surrender to you as Lord of their life. Today, right where they're sitting, right where they're watching, Holy Spirit of God, work among us, God, I ask that you, by your spirit, as you know every situation that we face in this room, that you would apply this message to our hearts today. Help us, Lord, to walk in the spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.